Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Ed Robinson, president and co-founder of Stash, an industry-leading subscription platform empowering middle-class Americans to invest and build wealth. Today, Stash is one of the fastest-growing financial technology companies with more than 6 million customers and assets worth $3 billion under management. Today, we're going to discuss the secrets to hyper-growth scaling. Ed, thanks so much for being with me. How are you? Uh, how are you where we are today in, um, in late April? And, and, and uh, if you wouldn't mind giving us a brief summary of Stash's growth journey since launching in 2015 to kick things off. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. Uh, and it's good to be in London on a, a very summery day, uh, which is always beautiful. Stash is an investing banking educational platform. Uh, as you mentioned, we've got over 6 million customers and our platform now has helped our customers save over $3 billion of assets under management, which is really something that we're really proud of. We started Stash in 2015 uh, based on a couple facts that we saw. 80% of America lives paycheck to paycheck. This is a super scary stat. But on top of that, 56% of Americans still aren't invested in stocks. 70% of households don't have any long-term financial plan. And 68% are afraid to retire. And so we saw this issue and we thought, listen, we have to go and try to build a product and a service that can actually help everyday Americans build long-term wealth. Um, our customers... Uh, aren't a typical customer that a regular financial institution goes after, um, as 95% of our customers are total beginners with little to no investing experience. The average household income is around 50 grand, and the average age is around um, around 35 to 38 years old. Our business model, which really sets us apart, is super aligned with the interests of our customers. We charge a very simple subscription fee, either $1, $3, or $9 a, a month, um, we are fiduciary by design by delivering kind of personalized products uh, that our customers can use. And should they not get value, they can just cancel the subscription. For us, we believe in long term. We're not a casino in the pocket. We are there to help everyday Americans build wealth and really long term wealth. It's been an incredible journey. And I'm uh, happy to delve into all the questions today. Yeah, I mean, some of those, some of those statistics you're, are, um, yeah. I'm a guy that likes having a chat, but some of those they make you just stop and think a little bit, don't they? And, and and one of the things that, from all the conversations I've had over the last 15 months since this podcast on Leadership Learns Begun, Ed, one of the things that I've been interested by is actually how what the business started out to do has either been tweaked or improved or yeah. really taken a different route entirely. That surprised me in the conversations in the last 15 months. Is what you're doing now exactly what you intended to do when you started out or has it gone through an evolved journey? I would say our mission has stayed exactly the same, which is how do we help everyday Americans save and build wealth? But the tools and the services that we provide and the technology that we utilize and the size of the team has obviously rapidly uh, evolved. And so when we first started, and that was October 2015, we had a very simple investing platform. It was a personal brokerage account. It cost you a dollar a month, and you could invest in 30 ETFs. We've always focused on education. We've always focused on advice. Um, But from there, we've expanded into banking, expanded into insurance, 
um, expanded into uh, retirement accounts and accounts for kids. And now we've even got um, what we call Stash 101, which is actually helping school kids and under 18 start thinking about building smart financial habits. And so it's still the same mission, but the product breadth has definitely uh, expanded aggressively. I'd be really interested to hear over the last seven years, Ed, how you've categorized the chapters, if you will, of, that Stash has gone through. Because looking at, you know, there's been multiple rounds of investment. You, I so often speak to people that say, cool, this was definitely the hardest phase or the challenges that I'm dealing with now, of course, are so different to what they used to be. I'd be really interested to hear from just stepping back momentarily, because I think one of the things that I, I, I liked with you, Ed, is that you high energy focus and like you, you've got a great amount about you as a character. Talk me through how, how the chapters have been over that last seven years. Yeah, it's been uh, it's so different compared to where we started, which was, can we get this product out? Is there going to be product market fit? Our customers going to like it? To the challenges we have today about just handling the rapid scale of what the business has become. When we first started, myself and Brandon, there was two of us. You know, we're now coming up to nearly 500 employees. We operate a fully hybrid working uh, culture. So we've got employees from Hawaii all the way over to the east coast of um, the UK. And so there comes with tons of different um, things that you need to manage and learn and grow. And I think for me, that's something that I really love. It's about how do you be self-reflective? How do you continue to learn? And how do you continue to put that strategic hat on, on guiding the business on what it needs to do to tackle next to allow you to continue to grow into the future? I knew that I definitely needed a, a few years to even get my head around what the hell that word strategy meant because um, <laughs> we, we didn't have any investment or any funding and still haven't had. And it was one, all the, one of those things where for the first few years, you're just in the mud fighting and just trying to get any customer you can, just trying to make your way in the world, right? Do, yeah. you, do you have it in your head, Ed? You strike me as someone that might say it's been great because there's been different challenges in different chapters. But would you would you say there was a time that you look back on and go, Whoa, that was definitely the most challenging of all of it so far? I feel like that can be on some, even on a daily basis, there are things that pop up and you go, wow, this is a new challenge I've not seen before. I think being a founder in a company uh, that is rapidly growing you think you've seen a lot, but then tomorrow comes and the next day comes, and the next day comes. And it's about how do you internalize what's happening? How do you really take half a step back and think about, okay, what does this actually mean? How would I replicate this? Or how do I improve this so that we can do better next time it comes along? How do I go and find the right team members to actually build that infrastructure to allow you to continue to grow? When I think about the most challenging times, I mean, the, the thing that happens when you bring in venture capital um, or investors is more pressure comes on. And so it's about how do you raise your own personal bar to meet those challenges, bring in another stakeholder that's looking for financial return. And it's about managing all of those things, again, to really drive an incredible product for the customer. And if you can continue to center yourself around why you started the company, and for us, it was to help everyday Americans build wealth, then I can drive alignment from the investor to our newest employee and making sure that we are staying focused on that mission. And if we do that, we'll continue to see incredible results. One of the interesting things being part of a founder, there were three of us that started our founder business here, but one of the things that's been really interesting is that we definitely fluked a little bit the fact that three of us had quite different skills that could yeah. go into the launch of the business. But we we now know that we were a bit too slow of, of assigning titles and roles. We kind of know that that held us up a little bit. Doing the, the co-founder kind of role is, is a good thing, but there comes to a point where 
that's going to start hampering your ability to be able to really do some scaling. And I'm sat here today, um, having finally got past the 220 employee headcount mark for the first time, which is a, a nice little milestone, but at the same yeah. point, it's taken me longer than I, I certainly would have liked. How have you ensured that in a founder-led business, you've stepped back at the right points? Has there been methodology? Has there been some kind of golden rule that you you and your founder, every quarter, or every month, you like you get away from the office, you kind of do things, you know, you, you make sure that you have that perspective and you're you're looking ahead in the right way. Yeah, um, 100%. So uh, myself and Brandon, the other co-founder of Stash, uh, we have a regular catch-up on uh, Tuesday mornings and Friday mornings where we just talk about strategic items. Uh, we operate um, at what we call an 80-20 rule where we divide our swim lanes under those 80-20 basically the 80% and 20% um, rules where 80% is my core uh, responsibility. And then I can lean in on that 20% to help him out with things that he might be struggling with. We constantly evaluate um, what falls in each of those swim lanes. Um, And then on top of that, what we both, what I definitely um, do is I try to think about how do I make myself redundant every six months? So what are the challenges that I see in front of me? How do I go and get that challenge started how do I really understand that problem? And then how do I go and find someone that can do a better job than myself? And if I can continue to do that, I will continue to set up a business that will be ready to continue to scale into the future. Because one of the challenges a lot of founders have is can they actually step back? Can they actually delegate? Can they actually let someone else take things over? Uh, and I think if you can't do that, that's going to hamper growth because when you're operating in multiple countries, multiple time zones, multiple products, if there aren't people that you've trained up or that feel accountable and empowered to make decisions, then you're going to be the bottleneck and the company is going to hit basically a ceiling. You're absolutely right. And it's definitely been something that I've been so mindful of when you've got big aspirations for a business, so keen for that to, to be done right and done well. I think it's incredibly easy just to go, I'm the person in this role for the rest of time. Whereas I'm I've been quite communicative with everyone saying that I'm the right guy as long as I'm adding value. And the second that I'm not, I'll say, right, we need someone else at the helm because the reality is I can't do it anymore. So you gave me a little bit of a, an indication there, perhaps, Ed, but yeah. how far ahead are you planning? So, and, you know, did that, it must have changed, I'm assuming, again, having done that journey that you guys have done in terms of numbers. But when you're a sub 50 person, sub 100 person business, it's extremely different, I think, to yeah, what it is yeah, when totally. you get to 150, 200 plus. So how, how has that evolved as time has gone on? Yeah, so I think the quickest way to think about it is in is in phases. So when we first started, we were literally planning that day. What are the list of burning problems that we had? How do we go and sort those burning problems? And I remember really well at 9.30 in the morning as a team uh, till about 30 to 40 employees, we would quickly just do a quick five um, to 10 minute huddle and go around that circle and say, what are we working on? What did we achieve yesterday? What are we working on today? As you then move to um, kind of the 50 to 100 person team, you still kind of understand what all people are working on, but you don't have that, that same amount of granular details. So you can go to one or two people. But then as we've expanded um, north of that, we have really set up a great like kind of strategic planning and we've set out work that are kind of what we call our big rock projects, which are company initiatives that span over multiple teams. And we've got real clear accountability and ownership on who actually is running with those projects and what are the deliverables and what are we expecting. And so as we've grown, we've had to make sure that we've put in accountability um, alignment and the right people in the right seats uh, to make sure that we can achieve the goals that were set out to uh, undertake. I think it's a, it's a brilliant point and one that I'm not going to rush past. People knowing, teams knowing, 
where accountability sits is definitely one of those scaling yeah. things that can get all of a sudden you've got seven people on an email chain or whatever yeah. being like what the hell is going on here this is not a productive use of people's time and whenever you go through a restructuring or a next phase and we're in that a little bit at the moment where we're looking at like well what's got us here ain't going to get us to this next 400 person target that we're aiming for and making sure that you can really kind of um yeah think with a clear head in relation to it i'm really interested as well just on a again i, I try and as part of these conversations have as many specific examples as possible when you talked about that and we're getting to that point now where you've got big operational strategic projects multiple teams accountability being crystal clear and are these the kind of teams that, that get checking once a quarter is it, is it more regular than that how does that work yeah, so um, the way we, we do it, we're an incredibly data-driven company. Everything that we are working on should be measurable and should be laddering up into our company objectives. We use an OKR framework, Objectives and Key Results framework. The company is, has got basically three objectives, and each team's um, objectives and key results should ladder up to that. We use dashboards to see how we're tracking against um, those projects. And then we have regular check-ins as well. I think for us, the three things that I constantly think about is finding the right people, making sure we're aligned on what are we working on and what does success look like, and then making sure we communicate. If you can get those three things going, then it's really clear the direction the company is going and what we need to do to succeed. If you don't have those three things, you don't have the right people, you're not aligned and you're not communicating, basically any road can do. And you will just be going off in a million different directions. And it'll be like that old analogy, um, someone rowing a boat, but every oar is pulling in a different direction. You go nowhere. And so for us, I spent a lot of my time working with um, our leaders and our internal comms team to really make sure that that message that's coming from either the board or from our senior executive team is feeding all the way down to the newest employees um, or the individual contributors. And that takes time and it takes processes. And that's something that I actually am really enjoying and something I'm spending a lot of time on right now. It's two or three bits, as per usual, with, with every one of your sentences is about, you know, four or five talking points from it. But the thing that the things that really jumped out from that, that conversation around the right, fr- the right growth frameworks. I looked at kind of the Rockefeller growth framework before. OKRs have been mentioned to me. There's there's four or five pretty predominant ones. It's really interesting to hear that the OKRs have, have been so successful for you. There's one thing that summarizes a lot of what you said, Ed. It's, it's keeping things as simple as it can be. Correct. I think the biggest thing that we, we've kind of seen, we've had people that have gone through like the new employee to now getting up to director level. And sometimes because they've done it within our business, which is a great thing, you know, people feel like they want to show you everything that they're doing. And actually the reality is what we want to try and do at the moment and coach and nurture and all the rest of it is, no, no, let's keep things as simple as they possibly can be. And as long as people know what good looks like, what does good look like in every single person's job? We know what we're driving for as a big person's aim and keeping everyone aligned, like, as you say, it's going to be fairly hard to get many major things wrong if you keep to those core principles. And I actually, I actually think sometimes the job of a CEO, I've definitely thought it in the last six months, has been your kind of role is like this, almost the chief aligning officer a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> because it's really easy for factions to come out and do things all you know individually. And actually, you, I don't know. I've, I've felt my, my role has definitely been making sure that everyone's keeping on that on that same trodden path. I don't know. I don't know how you feel like your involvement of your CEO journey has been, Ed. Yeah, so for me, I actually run a pretty simple philosophy and I kind of look at three kind of complementary components. The first is strategy. So thinking about the future of the business and what it needs to thrive. The second piece is kind of mentorship slash coaching. How do I be both self-reflective, but also empower the team and be there to help my leaders um, work through whatever they're working through? And then the third part is being that evangelist. 
you know, what are the best ways to continue to evangelize Stash to best serve our customers today and also in the future? So for me personally, how that relates to Stash, so I take full advantage of being based in the UK. I've got five hours head start against basically the majority of our team that's based in the US. And I'm like literally thinking about what do I need to work on strategically to help us um, continue to grow to the next level? I take my time from about 12 o'clock to about six o'clock where I'm literally just mentoring, coaching, being with my leaders and the team members, helping them really get aligned on some of the core projects that we're working on. And then after that, I'm spending time evangelizing. How do I go and find the next best employee? How do I go and continue to talk to the best investors out there to really understand the story and learn that so that I can bring it all back to my next morning, which will be around strategy and really reflecting on what I need to change or adapt given everything I've just learned. And so I think for me, um, I share that with my teams and my friends because it actually works for a lot of people if you break things up that way. And I also think it allows you to be also self-reflective. I see too many founders going in thinking that they have to be on top of everything and they actually become the biggest hindrance to growth because they're not giving themselves enough time to actually go and work on what's next. What's the next thing they need to work on? Or everything is a priority. And that actually causes such whiplash within the teams. And so it's about how do you find those right balances? And so that's why I love the philosophy that I use. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's sticking to core principles. I think um, it's very easy to get lost in a myriad of all the things that a business needs, but sticking to three big things like that, Ed, I think it's been a, a, a really great conversation so far in the, in, the, in the things that I love the most in relation to keeping things simple. And I think there's a, 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 I've got no doubt there were some excellent takeaways that people take from it. Culturally, there's a huge difference between when you as a founder sat there having beers with your team on a weekly basis compared to when... You're 500 staff, you've got that amount of customers, all of a sudden the business will not be fitting like it did in 2015, 2016. Talk me how the journey that Stash has been through culturally. Has it always been a pretty straightforward affair? Have there been some learns and some failings along the way? Like, How's that journey look like? Yeah, of course. I think um, going back to the foundation, so when Brandon and myself, we both worked in institutional trading in a big bank and we didn't love the culture that was in that ecosystem. It wasn't inclusive. Uh, it wasn't diverse. It wasn't bringing the best ideas to the top. Um, it was very bureaucratic. And we made a vow to each other that when we built Stash, we wanted to have one core value, and that is prioritizing our team and our people. And so every day we have that mission of making sure that we create a world-class team, but most importantly, it's diverse, it's inclusive, and people feel free to share their ideas and allow the best uh, ideas to come to the top. And so we've had to work really hard on that because um, that comes under challenge every day. The how sometimes is much more important than the what uh, and so we kind of followed those um, frameworks. And so for us in February, we actually are really excited. We actually uh, welcomed um, the HR leader and formal kind of uh, former Zoom global head of people to Stash, um, Lynn Olden. And she has been absolutely incredible, but most importantly, to continue to bolster like our commitment to building a totally inclusive and hybrid kind of model. And from that, we're super focused on inclusivity and diversity, but also driving belonging. If we mm. can drive a culture where our employees feel like the mission's part of them, they belong to that mission, then we're going to build the best products for our customers and that's going to drive the best business outcomes. 
Uh, and that's the philosophy that we've always taken uh, through all the ups and downs. I've read a fascinating, um, there's a great book uh, by Daniel Coyle called Culture Code. And one of the studies that he refers to is how important that it is that within 48 hours, employees have a conversation from someone very high up in the business when it comes to belonging. It becomes yeah. the, what they're part of and that the fact that retention productivity is like significantly more uh, and, and retention significantly better when they understand that bigger purpose of what they're part of. And actually, you know, within that 48 hours, I, I've made sure that I bring in a conversation with every new person that comes into the business, be it remote or whatever, where we have, have, a, have that conversation and where we have the conversation around, I don't care what my, I just don't care about job titles. <laughs> We're all here, part of this purpose and I want to hear ideas. I want it to be a completely open forum where even the, the smallest thing I want to know about, because I always remember the, there's a brilliant article, you know, the high performance podcast with um, Jake Humphreys that has kind yeah. of like sports people and everything else, but they had Toto Wolf on. And, and a little bit, the, the thing that jumped in my head when you said about you know excellence, Ed, is that when he walked in and, and saw that there was a, a coffee cup that had been there for two days and a three day old newspaper in reception. And he was going in there and it was like excellent, excellent, excellent everywhere. And he was like, he started grilling the people that were interviewing him saying, you got to talk about excellence. And there's like an old coffee cup out in the foyer. And I've just been sat out there like, are we choosing where we're excellent or are we great about it the whole time? What's our, what's our ethos there? Um, and, and, and it is one of those things, isn't it? It's, um, it's very easy to talk about, but I think it's the most important thing. I don't think any of us quite realize the role that top leaders have in demonstrating core values. Yep. You can have stuff on the wall. You can talk about it all you want. You have it at the bottom of your emails. Unless you have the core people demonstrating those values, it's only going to be coming really limited amount of impact. Agreed. And it also starts from us, the way we've always thought about building our investor base, our cap table, from our board construction to our senior um, leadership team, all the way down to our newest employee. We think about that alignment because if there isn't that alignment to our mission, which is to really build a generational business that helps everyday Americans build wealth, then we're going to fail. And it's constant, but and we do it every Thursday in our all hands. We repeat the same mission to our whole company because it's really important. It continues to be heard. And the fact that we are going to continue to focus on prioritizing people, because if we do that, uh, we will build the best things, the best products and the best service for our customers. So there's, a, there's an all hands meeting every Thursday. Every Thursday. I hear it a lot with smaller businesses there, but the size you guys are at now, like an all-hands meeting every Thursday, that was uh, that must have really done some evolving over the last few years, right? <laughs> it's done. I mean, it started off when we were all together, just us demonstrating like some of the, pro the products that we were working on. To now, it's a fully-fledged production. And I've got to be honest with you, it's incredible. The feedback of having you know nearly you know 450 employees hearing what we're working on, what we're accomplishing – because we've got some incredible stuff and some of the projects that we're taking on, be it from money movements to fraud to customer service to um, uh, new products to engineering and scaling, these are things that um, employees want to hear and also surround themselves around. People and employees want to be around A players that are coming up with solutions and creating and really taking ownership because that drives a deeper part of yourself to go and do the same thing in your area's expertise. And if we can continue to do that and continue to create a very safe work environment um, to bring up new ideas, then the products are going to continue to get better for our customers. Yeah, love that, Ed. Absolutely love it. We, we, uh, when you say weekly, there's me thinking 
oh, I speak every month and do it every quarter. Is it enough? You know, like, are we showing enough from the business on a, on a regular enough basis? So I think that's really, really interesting to hear. One of the other things I'd be really interested to hear about your journey, because we've definitely had two chapters of the business when it comes to hiring. Without a doubt, in the early days, we wanted like-minded people. We wanted like-minded people that thought quite like us and had the same kind of personality and therefore we'd all get on well. Hey, sporty guys that like, <laughs> to, have a, like to have a beer was definitely the hiring yeah. philosophy in the first couple of years. Yeah, that will take you certain, uh, to a certain place. What we realized that we were looking for at the time was cultural fit. And now, especially since we had all the leadership team together a couple of years ago, you know, again, especially after the pandemic, and went, what do we want to stand for? And we realized that the four eyes within our business of innovate, inspire, improve, and include – those are the things that we all care about. Those are the things that we want to be a part of. And therefore, actually making sure that we are hiring for cultural contribution a swim to those values yeah. rather than cultural fit was a huge shift in how we altered our entire hiring philosophy and strategy. Have you guys been through an interesting journey when you, how you've gone about your hiring in those years, uh, Ed, or have you always got, done it in a pretty consistent manner? I would say we'd like to think that we've um, had the same philosophy, which is being uh, around hiring an incredibly diverse and inclusive um, uh, employee base. However, we've gone through waves. And I would say one of the greatest things of actually bringing kind of Lynn in is to really sharpen some of the metrics around our hiring, because we want to make sure that, um, again, our employee base is diverse, just like our customer base is diverse. And so how do we come up with the best ideas if everyone is exactly the same demographic? And so um, because our customers are not from the same demographics. And so for us, um, we're, we're really proud that, you know, as of this year, you know, 51% of our um, hires uh, are actually uh, identified as women and 48% have identified as Black, Latinx or Asian. And that is kind of bang on who our customers are, but it's also the way that best ideas come. Having a, a, a mixture of different backgrounds and you know stories and experiences because those ideas come to the top the best ones and then we use the data to actually evaluate and work out is this the right thing should we doubling down or should we go back to the drawing board uh, and that's how we think about it absolutely right and it's like all these things if you've got the same bunch of people from the same backgrounds and the same type of demographic in a room you might have some good ideas but you're so limiting yourself to the different level of ideas that can be come up with when you've got a properly diverse team. Yeah. I think that any leader worth their sorts, I know feels very passionately about it because they just get the basic concept that <laughs> the more diversity you have, quite simply, the more ideas you're going to get in that room. And when great ideas happen, great things can happen. Yeah, right? so even just to double down on this, like one of the big learning lessons I've had was I came from a sales trading background, which is the louder you were, the more aggressive you were, the better trades prices you normally got. Since starting Stash, I've learned actually not all best ideas actually happen in the meeting room and they might actually be spoken. Some people just don't want to speak in meetings and that's actually should be okay. They can actually better come back to you through a written document or through a Slack message or through an email. And for me, uh, that was a big learning experience because I would have been, hey, if no one's got any better ideas, forever hold your peace kind of thing, we're moving forward. But it's now about how do you create that space um, and allow people with different backgrounds and different ways to speak and communicate to have their voices heard because some of those ideas are some of the best ideas. And that's something that I've really learned through my time is giving employees space and time to process because everyone processes things differently and communicates differently. One of the great things that um, I've been, you know, we've spoken about for a little bit of time, we did it a lot of years ago, but we're going to be going through the exercise soon, is doing that kind of like senior leadership strengths and kind of personality analysis yeah. where you get an outside company in yeah, yeah, yeah. and you go through it. But, but, but the thing that pinged in my head when you said that is because, as you say, 
just because one person's outgoing doesn't mean that they've got any good ideas. They just might be a good communicator or they might be a good facilitator, whatever it may be. Have you guys ever gone about that kind of official, uh, you know, getting someone in to do that analysis for you, Ed, or have you always had a bit of a natural ability to see and sense where things are lacking? No, I I pride myself in making sure I've got really amazing mentors around me. And so I've got two kind of full-time, what's that full-time? I've got two mentors I've been using for the last kind of two to three years. They also help a number of our senior executive team as well. And I think a big piece of that is constantly doing those kind of personal reviews, but also doing 360 reviews and really learning about what's working and what's not working and actually putting your own listening ears on and seeing when does this individual actually come with their best game? Is it actually in the meeting or are they someone that just needs 20 minutes to process? And so what we've tried to do is really improve the way we set up meetings and the way we collaborate Things like making sure that when you set up a meeting, pre-read materials have been sent, Um, making sure there's a clear agenda, making sure that someone's taking notes, making sure um, that there is a clear, simple process that allows anyone of any different communication style or um, type of process to make sure that they have got an ability to put input and really suck in that information. And I think a lot of that came through me when I was doing my own 360, when I was Get, got my 360s done. I can usually, I pick things up really quickly, but I want to move on. And one of the big bits of feedback I took was I need to just slow myself down, let people have an opportunity to get to the same level because they might actually have a better idea. But if I'm down the road at 100 miles an hour and moved on, they feel like they just got to catch up. And so that's one thing that we've I've definitely personally been working on um, over the last few years. Bang on, and especially as uh, someone that is without a doubt um, finds himself running at 100 miles an hour quite a bit <laughs> and enjoying the adrenaline of it all, Ed. Um, yeah. Methodology to slow down are, uh, are one of those things that I think about quite a lot. And actually why I brought in – I love I love our people. I love being in an office. I love everything that an office brings in terms of the energy. And I was someone that when I was doing their job, I'd love to be in an office too because I thrived off – you know, mini competitions and learning yeah. from my buddies and working and lunching and all the things that come with like, you know, working in central London every day. But, you know, I started working from home on a, on a lot of Mondays to do just that. Take stock, slow it all down, make sure the right things are being looked at in the right way. And I think if you are, uh, you know, driven by adrenaline and you love the charge and you love doing business and all the rest of it, I think finding your own personal methodology of how to slow down is massive. And Really interesting. One of the questions that we'll come on to now, I want to ask you about the funding rounds because that'll be something that you guys have got such a lot of experience with that I'd, I'd love to share with, with our listeners before we go. But I was going to ask you about personal development methodologies. I, I started working with an exec coach for the first time last year, which has been so eye-opening because they really ask questions that just no other human on the planet will ask you. You mentioned about your mentoring there, Ed. Is, is the mentoring your um your preferred or only source of development or are there, have there been others that have been successful too no there's there's so many different um methodologies that i i try to use and so um there's the mentors and i've got kind of the personal mentors but then i've also got the kind of the operational leadership men- mentors as well we've obviously got a ton of training that we do um a, a, as a company and also as a leader uh, obviously you can read uh and there's tons of literature out there the other two big pieces that I think are really important is um, I actually love working with younger companies. Uh, and so one of my big passions is actually helping companies that are at that seed, series A, series B com- uh, stage who are going through the things that we went through. And I'm a big believer that if you can teach, it's actually refining your own skills. And so I spend a bit of time actually doing that. 
And then the other part is actually spending spending time with people that have been there, done that before. Now, to wrap that all together, though, I think you've got to also create time to be self-reflective on yourself because you are the one that's still making the decisions. You are the one that understands all the different push and pulls that the company has. If you try to make every one of those different inputs, be it coaches, what you read, who you speak to, and you try to make everything work, it's going to fail. So you need to take all those inputs and really um, break it down to a model that works for yourself and then basically use that to push forward and build the infrastructure that you need to continue the company to scale. And so that's how I think about it is this kind of constantly learning and constantly trying to reflect on what I've learned and how I potentially can adapt it. It's so right, isn't it? And again, Ed, if, if you're at the top of setting the, setting, the, setting the tempo and setting the tone that the constant and desire to keep on learning is front and center. I, I, I finish every meeting we have as like a, a company-wide meeting saying just that. If everyone keeps that front and center, everything's going to keep going in exactly the right way. Now, um, the, 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 the final few, the, the final couple of questions I wanted to ask before we wrap things up, and um, uh, I think it's been a really great conversation so far. Ed. Thanks so much for, uh, for, for sharing all those things with me. Is that you've had a great amount of success with your funding journey so far. Um, yep. You've received $125 million in Series G funding. A couple of questions in relation to the funding side, but what's one of the most significant things that you focused on that's had the greatest impact throughout your funding journey? Can you pinpoint it to one or two things? Yeah, I think it goes back to what we are talking about before, which is around alignment from the investors to the product we're trying to build. And so when I think about it, um, there's this constant pendulum that swings in the investing world. It's the balance between revenue and growth uh, and sustainability. And so there are stages where all anyone wants to care about is how quickly can you add more customers? How quickly can you do that? Just keep adding more customers, keep adding more customers. But then quickly that pendulum can swing back literally within a week to like, how profitable are you? What does your revenue profile look like? What do unit economics look like? I think for us that what we've learned is we need to remove some of that noise. How do we go and build a generational business? You do that by balancing the two of those. How do we continue to maximize growth, but also making sure that we're building sustainable growth? Um, Because if it's not sustainable and you need to continue to rely on venture funding to keep you alive, if that market changes, you're you're a duck in in a fish in a barrel, whatever the right analogy is. (laughs) And so we've tried to keep it really balanced. Um, so that when we're speaking to investors, when we're speaking to employees, when we're, we're thinking about who is that next partner, we've got that real alignment that we're actually building something here generational. We're not trying to build something that will maximize an investor's return over the next two to three years. We're actually trying to build something that's going to be around for the next 15, 20, 30 years plus. Um, and that framing really weeds out some of the hot money um, and actually finds investors that really believe in the mission that you're um, bringing to the table and they're willing to kind of continue to um, partner with you through that those different pendulum swings. Yeah. And that's how we thought about it. Like anything, when you're doing something new for the first time, Ed, it all feels a little bit daunting, a bit scary, a bit, you know, a bit poor, like you're on the edge of your seat, your pants, so to speak. It's kind of like, wow, this is all, this is all new. And there's a great thrill that comes from that. But I'd imagine that there would have been some of what one, two, three of your biggest learns from your early days on your funding journey that you kind of that, you, that you've taken into where you are now. Yeah, I think um, communication and it's investors look at uh, you know connecting the dots 
not just, hey, I'm looking to raise money. Can I have some money now? That's, that you've got to build that relationship. You've got to be communicating. You've got to really understand the drivers. I think that's my first point. I think the second point is go and achieve what you said you're going to go and achieve. Like you've actually got to perform because that brings an incredible amount of um, credibility and a bit of FOMO from the investor that should they not invest, you're going to go and do it anyway. Yeah. Um, and then the, th- the third part is making sure you've got that alignment with the investor that you're going to bring in. If you're not aligned and there is not a cultural fit in terms of the same kind of time horizon, mission, vision, where they see the product going, then that's the last thing you want to be dealing with Um, because if you're not aligned, all of a sudden it just puts incredible amounts of tension in different parts of the business and that ripples through the company. So that would be my three. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. I think it's some absolute humdingers in there. I especially like the uh, fear of loss aspect where you're like, no, I know what we're going to go and do. So you guys want to be on board or you want to let someone else do it? It's kind of that little thing of being like, we're going to yeah, do I, it. I'll be honest with you, the, the greatest thing that I've seen is, you know, what is a venture um, investor's role? Their role is they get shown hundreds of investments on a weekly basis. That's their job to weed through them. They are getting people constantly asking for money. That's all they ask for. I need money. I need money. I need money. It's incredible when you change that paradigm and you say, actually, we don't need your money right now. We're good. All of a sudden, that power dynamic totally changes. Mm. And all of a sudden, um, you stand out in front of the pack. And then that allows you to actually build that relationship, that deeper understanding. And if that fits, then it then becomes a little bit around price. And for me, when you're building a generational business, price is not really as big a um, factor because you're going to be in the rough ballpark. If not, there's not a cultural fit. And so that's the way we've always thought about it and it's worked really well for us uh, today. I know someone else wise said to me once as well in relation to like your investment partner of like kind of setting the terms out of what you want from them. Like this is what we're going to need to be able to maximize where we want to get to. If you're not that, no problem. All the best. And and it totally, and uh, it's funny when I think about our investors, they all bring something different to the table. We've got some investors that are only capital got some investors that really want to dig in and help us um, with some of the operational things. We've got some investors Some investors just want to help us with either aqua hires or um, hiring or, or so forth. And I think you can't all have the same exact investor. They've all got to be different. They've got to be at different stages because your company is going to continue to change. And what an investor you needed in day one is very different to the investor we need today. Yeah, love that. Um, Ed, what does great leadership look like to you? Yeah, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, I think it goes around um, the three components that I was talking about. One, giving yourself space to set up some strategy, your strategy and where you're going. Two, I think the biggest piece is around mentorship and coaching. Like if you think you can take on everything, then you're going to break. You've got to be able to coach, communicate, and work with um, your leaders to help um, drive the leadership of the company. And then how do you evangelize? And so I think I spend most of my time really looking for people that kind of can fit in those three things, the three categories. But then on top of that, how do we get the alignment and how do we make sure we know who we're accountable to and what we're accountable for? If you get that all together, I think that become, creates an incredible leader that can be reflective but also can um, adjust and adapt as the market company um, or you know, factor, different factors uh, change. Absolutely. And I think the thing that cries out from you, which is in lots of ways, it kind of summarizes a lot of the best skills in relation to leadership is that big gay word, authenticity, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're you know trying to do it with something that you don't believe in, but you do, you're doing something because this is how you feel and this is how you are, 
I think that goes a long way. And I think when, as you as the company's grown, what I've noticed is that everyone's watching you. And if you try it, if you're not authentic, you yeah. get shown up so quickly, it is incredible. And so for me, um, I believe being really honest, transparent, and saying it how I see it. And I think, yeah, it might bring up a tough conversation here and then. Um, but that tough conversation, in my humble opinion, if you call it a debate, call it conflict, call it whatever you want to call it, is better to have today than having it tomorrow or in a couple of weeks' time because that then allows it to fester. And if you let things fester as you're growing rapidly, um, it's like it's like a cancer. It just keeps growing and getting worse and worse and worse. And Absolutely. so that's something I've definitely learned. Final light, nice light-hearted question to finish things um, yeah. up. And it sounds like you, you like me, Ed, um, quite a big fan of um, of getting sucked into a few books and a few different ideas and theories in relation to how things could be done that little bit better. Has there been a book, a podcast, or a movie that you recommend that you've taken some long-lasting learns from? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, for me, uh, it's a book um, called Essentialism. Uh, it's called Essentialism, uh, the D- uh, Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And as a founder and a, a father of three, there is always so many things that are on your <laughs> plate that you're trying to juggle. But it's about what is actually the most essential. Um, what are those few priorities that you know you're going to actually put proper impact into versus trying to do lots of things uh, really poorly? So a really good example, at 6.30, religiously, I walk downstairs and I have time with my kids dinner with my wife and I put my phone away. When I think about it from Stash's perspective, what are the three priorities that we need to focus on as a company? And let's go and do them really well. Yeah. Let's push the noise out. They might be amazing ideas, but let's create frameworks for those to be evaluated. And then once, as one priority has been finished, let we'll sub something else in. But let's not go and try to take on the world. Let's go and do a couple things really, really well. And those are the things that I try to do both in my personal and also in my uh, in my professional um, life as well uh, and across Stash. Love it. Ed, um, I think I call these things um, really appreciative of you coming on. I think Stash's journey is fascinating. I'm going to be keeping a really firm watch in relation to where the business uh, where the business goes and hopefully keep, keep going from strength to strength. And I just love love the purity of its uh, of its vision. I love the energy that come, you come across as a leader. So thank you so much for coming on today. Um, really excited for the future. And um, yeah, look forward to speaking to you again. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. It's uh, my pleasure. Thanks so much.